0: If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of BradburyMedia.co.uk. Hello, and welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In the last few episodes, I've mentioned Futuria Fantasia a number of times. This was the fanzine that the young Ray Bradbury put out when he was about 18 or 19 years old. And I thought it would be interesting to read an entire issue of Futuria Fantasia. Now, they're very short, just a few pages, really. And Ray only published Futuria Fantasia for about a year starting in summer 1939 and finishing in spring 1940, putting out four issues in total. They long ago went out of copyright, and you'll find versions of them on the Project Gutenberg website. You'll also find links to them in fanac.org, which is the fan history project, the science fiction fan history project. And there was even a book uh, published in 2007, I think, which collected facsimile versions of Futuria Fantasia with a little bit of introductory material. Now, the peculiar thing about these old fanzines is that they were produced on duplicators. Um, I'm not sure what the technical brand name would have been for such machines, but they're the kind of things that, if you are of a certain age, your schoolteacher would have used to produce multiple copies of handouts. And the paper would always have this sort of purplish lettering on it. And there was a distinctive smell to these things as well. Well, that's the kind of paper and the kind of process that was used for Futuria Fantasia, I believe. I've never actually handled an original copy of a Futuria Fantasia. I've only ever seen scans or photocopies. But in the book that was put out in 2007, the facsimiles in there certainly have that look of duplicated pages. The first issue of Futuria Fantasia had an illustration on the cover by Hannes Bock. Now, Hannes Bock was a friend of Ray's, and even though his subjects were fantasy creatures which had no existence in real life, he made them look thoroughly real and convincing. So if you've never looked at the artwork of Hannes Bock, look it up. It's, it's really quite fantastical. And there on the cover of Futuria Fantasia, volume one, number one, summer 39, Ray D. Bradbury editor is a sort of a strange alien with a very long chin and a very long top lip. And it's signed Hans Bock, H-A-N-S. But Bock usually went by the name Hannes, H-A-N-N-E-S. But that wasn't his real name but I'll leave that to you to look up. So here we go, the first issue of Futuria Fantasia, summer 1939, and this is the first article. (music) Greetings! At long last, Futuria Fantasia. The best laid plans of men, it seems, are destined for detours or permanent and disappointing annihilation upon the road to accomplishment. It was this way with Futuria Fantasia, planned for publication last summer. Piles of archaic tomes towered on all sides of the editorial desk. When the door to the office was opened unexpectedly, a white gusher of manuscripts and relatives spewed out. More than once, ye editor was suffocated unto death by the musty volumes that poured in from all over Los Angeles. And then, Someone turned off the financial faucet, leaving us all soaked up, but with no water. And so, into an enforced hibernation, went Fufa. The manuscripts became intimate acquaintances with all of the spiders in the family vaults. Even the writers could be seen lounging around in their caskets, waiting for technocracy, and their 30 doubloons every Thursday to come rolling in. But recently, awakening from the profound inactivity of spring fever, your editor became interested in technocracy. The more he heard about it, the more he wanted everyone else to hear. So turning the revolving door on his crypt, he reached over and shook TB Yurk out of his stupor and begged him to write an article, The Revolt of the Scientists, which appears herein. Not content with this, He engaged Ron Reynolds, new fan author, who first appeared in Tucker's De Journal to whip up a story about the Technate and its effect upon the hack writer in the coming decades. And Ackermann is here, science fiction's finest fan and friend, has turned in an interesting yarn that he wrote at the gentle age of 16, some few years past. But best of all, there is nothing humorous in this issue by the editor himself which should cause huge, grateful sighs of relief from Maine to MISC and back. Bradbury just has a poem, and a serious one at that. And so, here it is, for ten cents, out every other decade or so. Futuria Fantasia. Hypoed into life, mainly because of the crying need for more staunch technocrats. Mainly because of the New York Convention, with which it doesn't deal at all in subject matter but does so wholeheartedly in spirit and thought. And mainly because it's been a hell of a long time since a large-sized mag came from our LASFL way, where the natives are all sitting around and dreaming of the New York Canyon kiddies and praying, atheistically of course, that in the near future they may wind up in Manhattan behind the pool ball perisphere. And I don't mean the one numbered eight. None of the expectant tripsters have ever seen New York before, and have already chewed their fingernails down to the shoulder in ecstatic anticipation. I hope you like this brainchild, spawned from the womb of a year-long inanimation. If you do like it, how about a letter sent to the editorial offices of FF? Appoint yourself as A1 mourner and critic, and pound away at the mag it will be appreciated. And if you have a dime in your pocket that hasn't had a breath of air in a few days, just drop that in too. This is only the first issue of FUFA. If it succeeds, there will be more, better issues coming up. And your cooperation is needed. Good luck to the New York Fan convention. I'll meet you in Manhattan. Ray D. Bradbury, Editor. So, there's a few things in there that probably need unpacking. Firstly, Ray's habit of abbreviating Futuria Fantasia as Fufa and occasionally as FF. And then there's some name dropping. TB Yerk is mentioned. This is Bruce Yerk. Now, I've seen some things that suggest that his name was pronounced Yerky but I'm not really sure. I'm going to carry on calling him Yerk because it doesn't sound as comical as Yerky. And there's a mention of Ron Reynolds. Ron Reynolds is a pseudonym for Ray Bradbury. There's the mention of technocracy. Now, technocracy was a movement in the 1930s, which was all about the idea of having experts run our society. But you'll find out more about technocracy in a minute when I read uh, T.B. Yerkes article. And then there's the mention of Ackerman, Forrest J. Ackerman. Forry Ackerman was, at this time, a fan and an agent and something of an editor, something of a writer. And he actually became the world's most famous science fiction fan and he lived for a very long time. He was a few years older than Ray, and he was a collector, he was a publisher, he was an editor, he did a bit of everything, and he knew everybody in the field. So when Ray writes, and Ackerman is here, he means forry is here, our friend forry There was a reference there to LASFL, Los Angeles Science Fiction League, which I usually call the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. I'm probably wrong in that. Ray is probably right. It probably was the Science Fiction League. And he keeps talking about the New York Convention, or Meeting You in Manhattan, or the Sci-Fi Fan Convention. What he's referring to there is the first ever World Science Fiction Convention, which was held in 1939 in New York and Ray travelled across country with a few other friends to attend that convention. It was a mass gathering of science fiction fans, the first labelled as a Worldcon, and probably the biggest convention for science fiction ever held up until that point. Next we come to the article called The Revolt of the Scientists by technocrat Bruce Yerke. And this is the article which explains technocracy for the benefit of those who don't really know what it is, like you and me. And I'm not going to read the entire thing to you, but I will give you a link on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, to the entire issue of Futuria Fantasia, so you can read these articles in full if you're a glutton for punishment. But what we will hear in this cut-down version of Bruce Yerke's article are the key points about technocracy, as it was in the year 1939. The Revolt of the Scientists by technocrat Bruce Yerke. The editor of this magazine has asked me to prepare an article about a certain subject that has hitherto been totally lacking from the pages of all the science-fictional magazines, and which, with an article in a special LASFL publication burst a bombshell on the science-fictional field. Being recognised as the science-fiction technocrat, I was asked to do this by Mr Bradbury, who is himself a new recruit to our ranks. This article will cause much interrogation It would be impossible for me in this limited space to give you all of the facts I wish to, but I do suggest that everyone who is interested should go to the nearest Technocracy Inc. section, and there are many in every large city, and receive some of their literature. If you have ever heard of Technocracy, It was probably through some garbled news item, and thus you, like I myself, no doubt have or had a very wrong opinion of this organisation. It is perfectly legal in all respects, being incorporated under the laws of New York State. It is technically an educational organisation, and many authorities have to admit that Tech's 20-week study course is the equivalent of a four-year college experience. Technocracy is not an organization that wants to overthrow the American government, but only an org that will step in when the present price system collapses. At this point, it must be taken note of that price system is not a different word for the Marxian definition of capitalism. Price system is merely a term designating any system using a circulating medium of exchange for the distribution of goods and services. If you go to a technocracy section, they will show you a chart that will convince you that this system will collapse before 1945, probably 1942. This nation is so highly interdependent that the failure of one phase of its industrial sequence would mean the ultimate collapse of the whole country. If the electric power of New York was shut off, the city would burn down in approximately six hours. Under technocracy, people will be classified in a set of probably one hundred industrial sequences, according to their work. Each of these is known as a functional sequence. Let us trace the work of one sequence from the bottom to the top. The nation will be divided into regional divisions, determined by latitude and longitude. In each division, there will be the various offices of whatever sequences are operating in that division. Some will only have three or four, or even as high as fifty. In this division, we will find, say, a factory for the production of steel, and thus there will be a steel sequence in this division. The thing of most interest, to all interested, is the method of purchase, or what is referred to as the medium of exchange. In tech, there is no medium of exchange. There is only a method of technological accounting. The means whereby you will get a new razor blade or a malted milk is to be known as distribution certificates or energy certificates. These certificates issued to every person on this continent for 30 days will be good only for one person and no other. Since they will be able to purchase as much, or I should say since they will give the individual purchasing power of $20,000 per year, each will have everything he needs. Stop right now and think what this means in the reduction of crime. These certificates cannot be stolen, and since everyone will have all they could possibly use, there will be no need to steal. Many things such as housing, transportation, medical care, recreation, education, etc. are furnished by technocracy. One can easily see what a secure life this affords every citizen, and what a boon it is to scientific research. In closing, remember these few things. Technocracy is not a political or revolutionary movement. It is 100% American, It cannot work anywhere but on the American continent, because only here have we the necessary technological developments, the necessary trained force of technicians, and the necessary resources to institute an economy of abundance in place of an economy of scarcity. Technocracy is the only salvation when the price system fails. It's not a political theory, but the next state of civilization. It is the best form of democracy ever conceived. It furnishes security, education, protection, and all that goes with it to the people of the American continent. It is not in its formative state. The only reason why we don't have it now is because you are still duped into believing there is another way out. Take technocracy or take chaos. Wow, what an article. And this is in an amateur science fiction magazine, a fanzine published by 18-year-old Ray Bradbury. Now, Bruce Yerke is a real person, and he wrote that article. And Ray clearly was very much convinced by technocracy. Ray wasn't really a very political animal at this stage of his life but he was thoroughly convinced by technocracy. And I think a lot of people in the science fiction community were, because they were all the time reading utopian fiction. They were reading stories about how the world could be, if only. And technocracy seemed to be providing the science fictional future that many fans dreamed of. So with Bruce Yerk's article setting the scene for what technocracy is, Futuria Fantasia then moves on to a story by someone called Ron Reynolds, who is really Ray Bradbury. And it's a story, a piece of fiction, and it's called Don't Get Technital or Don't Get Technatal. Obviously, we've only ever seen this written down. We don't know how this should be pronounced. I'm guessing it's a pun on Don't Get Technical and therefore, it should be pronounced "Don't get technatal" if you can even hear that difference, but I've heard many people call it "Don't get technatal," which would be fair enough. That's what it looks like so Although Ray was a big supporter of technocracy, this story that you're about to hear is a satirical piece, and it seems to be poking fun at technocracy, and in particular. It's drawing attention to the fact that if we lived in a perfect world where all of our needs were met, it would be very difficult to make good art, because art kind of depends on conflict. Because Don't Get Technical" is written by Ray Bradbury, I'm going to read it in full. Don't Get technical, by Ron Reynolds, alias Ray Bradbury. For several moments, Stern had eyed his typewriter ominously, contemplating whether he should utter the unutterable. Finally, damn, he roared, I can't write anymore. look, look at that. He tore the sheet out of the rollers and crumpled it in his fist. If I'd known it would be this way, he said. I wouldn't have voted for it. Technocracy is ruining everything. Bella Stern, preoccupied with her knitting, glanced up in horror. What a temper, she exclaimed. Can't you keep your voice down? She fussed with her work. There now, she cried. You made me drop a stitch. I want to be a writer, Samuel Stern lamented, turning with grim eyes to his wife and the technate has spoiled my fun. "'The way you talk, Samuel,' said his wife, "'I actually believe you want to go back to that barbarism prevalent in the dark thirties. "'It sounds like one damn good idea,' he said. "'At least I'd have something decent, or indecent, to write about.' "'What can you mean?' she asked, tilting her head back and thinking. "'Why can't you write? "'There are just oodles of things I can think of that are readable.' Something like a tear rolled down Samuel's cheek. "'No more gangsters! No more bank robberies! No more hold-ups! No more good old-fashioned burglaries! No more vice-gangs!' His voice grew lachrymose as he proceeded down an infinite line of no-mores. "'No more sadness!' he almost sobbed. "'Everybody's happy, contented. No more strife or hard work. Oh, for the days when a gangland massacre was headline scoop for me!' "'Tush!' sniffed Bella. "'Have you been drinking again, Samuel?' He hiccuped gently. "'I thought so,' she said. "'I had to do something,' he declared. "'I'm going nuts for want of a plot.' Bella Stern laid her knitting aside and walked to the balcony, looked meditatively down into the yawning canyon of the New York Street fifty stories below. She turned back to Sam with a reminiscent smile. Why not write a love story? What? Stern shot out of his chair like a hooked heel. Why, yes, she concluded. A nice love story would be very enjoyable. Love? Stern's voice was thick with sarcasm. Why, we don't even have decent love these days. A man can't marry a woman for her money. And vice versa, everyone under technocracy gets the same amount of credit. No more Reno, no more alimony, no more breach of promise or lawsuits. Everything's cut and dried. The days of society weddings and coming out parties are gone because everyone is equal. I can't write political criticisms about graft in the government, uh, about slums and terrible living conditions, about poor starving mothers and their babies. Everything is okay. Okay. Okay, his voice sobbed off into silence. Which should make you very happy, countered his wife. Which makes me very sick, growled Samuel Stern. Look, Belle, all my life I wanted to be a writer. Okay, I'm writing for the pulp magazines for a couple of years, right? Okay? Then I'm writing sea stories, gangsters, political views, first class bump offs. I'm happy, I'm in my element. Then, bingo, in comes technocracy, makes everyone happy. Bump, out goes me. I just can't stand writing the stuff people read today. Everything is science and education. He ruffled his thick black hair with his fingers and glared. You should be joyful that the population is at work doing what they want to do, Bella beamed. Sam continued muttering to himself. They took all the sex magazines off the market first thing, all of the gangster, murder and detective publications. they have been educating the children and making model citizens out of them. Which is as it should be, finished Bella. Do you realise, he blazed, whipping his finger at her, that for two years there hasn't been more than a dozen murders in the city? Not one suicide or gang war or... Heavens, sighed Bella. Don't be prehistoric, Sam. "'There hasn't been anything really criminal for twenty years now. "'This is 1975, you know.' "'She came over and patted him gently on the shoulder. "'Why don't you write something science-fictional?' "'I don't like science,' he spat. "'Then your only alternative is love,' she declared firmly. "'He formed the despicable word with his lips then. "'No, I want something new and different.' He got up and strode to the window. In the penthouse below, he saw half a dozen robots moving about speedily, working. His face lit up suddenly, like that of a tiger spying his prey. Jumping jigwheels, he cried. Why didn't I think of it before? Robots! I'll write a love story about two robots! Bella squelched him. Be sensible, she said it might happen some day he argued just think love oiled welded bit of metal wired for sound he laughed triumphantly but it was a low laugh a strange little sound bella expected him to beat his chest next robots fall in love at first sight he announced and blow an audio tube bella smiled tolerantly You're such a child, Sam. I sometimes wonder why I married you. Stern sank down, burning slowly, a crimson flush rising in his face. Only half a dozen murders in two years, he thought. No more politics. No more to write about. He had to have a story. Just had to have one. He'd go crazy if something didn't happen soon. His brain was clicking furiously. A calliope of thought was... Tooting in his subconscious, he had to have a story. He turned and looked at his wife, Bella, who stood watching the air traffic go by the window, bending over the sill, looking down into the street 50 floors below. And then he reached slowly and quietly for his atomic gun. Immediately after that story, there's this note from Yi Editor. An explanation. You may have wondered why I placed the technocrat story and article in FUFA. Well, it's because I think technocracy combines all of the hopes and dreams of science fiction. We've been dreaming about it for years. Now, in a short time, it may become reality. It surely deserves support from any serious fictioneer. And you can't say this mag isn't balanced. First, I give you Yerk's article on tech. Then I give you a satire on the same thing, jabbing at it in a good-humoured way. And then, when you read Ackerman's article, you'll see almost the complete annihilation of Earth. So, whether you are an optimist or a pessimist about the future of humanity, you'll find either side in FUFA. But... On the side, I'm all for the technate, eh? Yeah. And then Ray devotes several pages to reproducing a story by Forrest J. Ackerman. Furry was a friend of Ray's. He was one of the leading figures in Los Angeles science fiction fandom. And this piece called The Record is presented as a very early piece of fiction writing from Ackerman, but I'll let Ray introduce it. This being the first issue of FUFA, I feel fortunate in being able to offer a piece of scientific fiction by the field's most famous fan. The record was written first in 1929, scarcely more than a sketch, on two pages. Ackerman was 13. Ed Earl Rep, Los Angeles author of The Radium Pool, said of it, I found it delighting and exceptionally interesting for the writing of a boy so young, Ackerman rewrote it into a three-page story later, the present product. It hasn't been touched since. It's not being retouched now. Allow me to present the record as a record of how Forry wrote, spelled and punctuated six years ago at the age of 16. Once again, this is a Bradbury podcast, so I'm not going to read the whole of the record. It has its moments, but I'll give you the flavour of the first half, and I'll give you the ending. And if you're really curious as to what goes on in between, you can check the link in the show notes and find the entire piece in Futuria Fantasia. The Record by Forrest J. Ackerman For 20 years for twenty long, horror-filled, war-laden years, the earth had not known peace. Hovering over the metropolises of the world came long, lean battle projectiles, glinting silver in the sunlight, or coming like gaunt mirages of grey out of the midnight sky to blast man's civilization from its cultural foundations. Man against man, ship against ship, a ceaseless and useless orgy of slaughter. Men at their battle stations in the ships pressed buttons, releasing radio bombs that blistered space and lifted whole cities up in shattered pieces and flung them down grim ruins, reminders of man's ignorant hatreds and suspicions. And gas, thick black clouds of it, billowing over the cities seeking every possible egress, pushed forward by colossal wind machines. But even when victory came for the one side, often nature, in one of her vengeful moments, would send the black gas flowing back to annihilate its senders. Rays cut the air, power bombs exploded incessantly. rays robbed the earth of its water, shot it up into the atmosphere and made of it a fog that condensed only after many months. And heat rays made deserts out of fertile terrain. Rays that hypnotized caused even the strong-minded to commit suicide or reveal military secrets. Hedrick Hunson was fighting with phosphorized fists, hand enclosed in chemically treated gloves that burned as they struck the antagonist, insulated on the interior for the wearer, when suddenly the two of them were caught by a spreader. The other man died instantly, but Hedrick got it in the side and was whirled about sickeningly and survived. He was lying painfully on something when he came to, but felt too dizzy and sick to move. At last, when his head had cleared a bit, he rolled over into a sitting position and reached out his arms to grasp a phonograph. Big things came in small packages in the days of 2171, and a portable phonograph might well be taken for a weapon of some sort, which was exactly what Hedrick thought. And you can hardly blame him, because no one in that generation had ever seen one of the things. There was a curious story connected with the dying of music concerning the days of 2050, when there was a movement to stamp out all symphonies and songs and things even slightly sentimental. Hedrick found the crank that wound the portable, turned it, reasoning that perhaps it gave power, and then holding it away from him, he waited for rays to spurt out or something to explode. Nothing happened. Hedrick was disappointed. After an agony of perspiration and puzzlement, he finally, accidentally, placed the needled arm onto the disc. The disc, he noticed, was black and filled with little undulations. The disc was like a wheel. So Hedrick thought it should revolve like one, shouldn't it? He pushed the starter thoughtfully and was more than surprised when the disc started spinning From the phonograph came music. Music and singing. The lost art had returned. The art, banished under compulsion, had made a comeback. Some man was singing on the record, uh, in a queerly interesting and familiar tongue, the ancient English. The singer seemed sad, almost crying, and Hedrick was thrilled as he played it over and over again, drinking in the new experience like wine on the lips of a connoisseur. The voice rose, fell, lingered, and Hedrick suddenly didn't feel like fighting anymore. The music floated out over the tumbled ruins, descended to the ears of the other people, and the fighting ceased. They were transformed. They came running to crowd about the machine. And there, in that aged music shop, they stood enthralled. Music filled their souls. It was exactly what they had needed and wanted for many years. And it had been denied them. Music was the balancing force, the force that would help them struggle ahead, rebuilding the world. And next time, they would be saner, they knew. Never again would they leave all of the work to the machines. Now they would work and sing and play. It would be work, hard work, for some time to come. But they had found music again, and that would anchor them to sanity. And thus was mankind saved through a record. Sunny Boy. After the Forry Ackerman story is a small piece of editorial text which reads, Futuria Fantasia! Fall issue coming up as soon as ye editor returns from Jaunt to Manhattan. In case you intend writing me and telling me I spelled Manhattan wrong in the editorial and above, I already know it. It was just a typical graphical error. The next issue will be even larger, containing your comments on FUFA and articles by Ackerman, Yerk, Henry Cutner, Jack Ehrman and Ron Reynolds. There will also be a play-by-play description of the trip to New York and the happenings there in the science fiction outfield. By Bradbury, of course. And then there's a poem Thought and Space by Ray D. Bradbury Space, thy boundaries are time and time alone. No earth-born rocket, seedling skyward sown, will ever reach your cold infinite end. This power is not man's to build or send. Great deities laugh down venting their mirth at struggling bipeds on a cloud-wrapped earth, chained solid on a war-swept waning globe, for fate who witnesses to pry and probe. But list, one weapon have I stronger yet, prepare infinity and God's regret. Thought quick as light shall pierce the veil, to reach the lost beginning's holy grail. Across the sullen void on soundless trail, where new-spawn suns and chilling planets wail, One thought shall travel midst the gods' playthings, past cindered globes where choking flame still sings. No wall of force yet have ye firmly wrought, that chains the supreme strength of purest thought. Unleashed without a body's slacking hold, thought leaves the ancient earth behind to mould. And when the galaxies have heeded death and welcomed, lastly, space's poisoned breath, still shall thought travel as an arrow flown. Space, thy boundaries, are time and time alone." So that was it. That was the end of Futuria Fantasia, Volume 1, Number 1. Interesting that Ray called it volume one, number one, implying that there was going to be more than one volume. In fact, there never was. Futuria Fantasia ran to just four issues. So we had volume one, number one, through to volume one, number four. And then he stopped because by the end he was getting quite busy as a science fiction writer. And very soon after he made his first professional sale. I can't say that Futuria Fantasia is an outstanding fanzine. This first issue is quite remarkable for being so focused on technocracy, both through presenting a factual article about it and then writing a story based upon it. And then even on the mailing label, Ray sticks a technocracy sticker Or at least that's what it looks like in these facsimile reproductions that you'll find of Futuria Fantasia. Of course, many science fiction fans then and now were producing their own fanzines. Today, of course, fans will also produce uh, podcasts and blogs and all those things that I do. So it's always been a fanish activity to want to explore science fiction, to comment on it, and also to build community around it. That's one of the great things about these early fanzines, is that they were a way of people building community. Before we had any social media as we know them today, we had the social media of the self-addressed envelope that people would send off for a copy of the latest fanzine from somebody, And in that fanzine, they'd learn about a fanzine that somebody else had produced, and they'd send off for that. That concept of sending off for things, we just don't have anymore. And I'm not saying that that was a a better thing than the way the world is now. It was just different. But what is remarkable is that people used these early fanzines as a way of building that community in precisely the way that today we use what we call social media, I suppose the bottom line is that Futuria Fantasia is only really interesting because we know what happened to the editor of it. We know what happened to Ray D. Bradbury. We know that Ron Reynolds, the uh, non-existent author of Don't Get Technical, was really one and the same with Ray Bradbury. We know that Ray Bradbury would become not only one of the best science fiction writers on the planet, one of the best writers, full stop. So it's great to have this kind of archaeological dig available to us. And these fanzines were intended to be ephemeral. You know, nobody expected anyone to collect them or keep them forever. And who would have thought that the print would even have stayed on the page after all these decades? But they did. They have. We still have them today. And through projects like fanac.org, All of that is being preserved, or at least as much of it as survives today. Unfortunately, we have all of Futuria Fantasia. It's not great, it's not the greatest fanzine ever, it's not the best writing that Bradbury ever did. Even in those times, he was doing some of his better writing for other people's fanzines, other people's publications. But it sure is interesting to be able to see the very origins of a great writer. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website bradburymedia.co.uk